Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. I haven't used this verse in a while, but Acts 17.11 applies to everything we talk about today. Okay, that, that all of us have the burden to go out and search the scriptures ourselves, right? To prove that these things are so. But a few things about traditions. If you look at Mark 7, verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. You know, I can't think of many more seasons that we celebrate throughout the year, holidays that have more traditions than Christmas. And Christmas has a lot of traditions around the timing and around what really happened. And like Mark says, like the Lord says in Mark, through those traditions, you can, you can make the word of God of none effect. You can nullify it. In Colossians 2 verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the word and not after Christ. So the traditions of men and the rudiments of the world can spoil us. And that's a warning from Colossians that they can seep in where you almost miss really what God's word is saying and, and not unrelated to Christmas to some degree, but this really actually kind of hit me last night when uh, Randy and I were watching this documentary about enemies within the church. And one of the things that was being talked about was the freedom of religion. And that's, a, that's really a, a tradition of man, right? But what does God's word say? God's word says, you shall have no other God before me. And think about Israel all throughout the Old Testament. They were not to have other religions and worship other gods in their, in their land. And so it just kind of hit me in a, in a weird way last night. But in any case, the spirit of Antichrist seeks to change the times and the seasons from Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. This is speaking of the Antichrist. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, when you study this in totality of scripture, the time, times, and the dividing of time is the last three and a half years of the tribulation. But the spirit of Antichrist seeks to change the times, the laws, and the seasons. And we know from the New Testament that the spirit of Antichrist is already operative amongst us. So it's no surprise that the timing of when Jesus showed up on the earth has been manipulated in a lot of ways by the enemy for a lot of reasons, right? It's to get your focus off of what his word is saying. But a few questions. You know, when was Jesus born? What is the Feast of Trumpets? Uh, were there really three wise men? All of us have been shown that since Sunday school. And where is Bethlehem? Uh, surprisingly, there's actually two Bethlehems in the Bible. So we're going to look at that today as well. So let's first, let's first look at all this from a historian standpoint. 4 BC is widely assumed as of the year of Christ's birth. 
And it was, it was based on a faulty conclusion derived from Josephus. So if you don't know who Josephus is, he's a Jewish historian that wrote a lot during Jesus' day and after Jesus died. He was, a, he was a chronicler. He wrote history a lot about things that happened. You can actually learn a lot about the Jewish culture and what was going on in Jerusalem and Israel from his writings during the time of Jesus. But he records an eclipse that was assumed to be on March 13th of 4 BC, shortly before Herod died. And that was actually the eclipse that occurred on December 29th of 1 BC, so three, three years and call it nine months later. Arrhenius, born roughly a century after Jesus, notes that the Lord was born in the 41st year of the reign of Augustus. And a lot of time had to elapse between Jesus' birth and Herod's death. Because the family, remember, the family went to Egypt to escape Herod's edict and did not return until after Herod's death. And that's all from Matthew chapter 2, 15 through 22. So a lot of time had to, had to pass there. Herod died on January 14th of 1 BC, and that's, that's in this ancient Jewish scroll. They chronicle that. So he died on January 14th of 1 BC. When you look at the year 2 BC, uh, Tertullian is born around 160 AD, so think about 130, you know, roughly years after Jesus died. He stated that Augustus began to rule 41 years before the birth of Jesus, 41 years before and died 15 years after that event. Okay, Augustus died, we know from history, on August 19th of 14 AD. So that would place Jesus' birth around 2 BC. Remember in dating, there's no year zero. So when it gets to 1 BC, it skips to 1 AD then. There's no, you don't add an extra year by going to zero, then up one. It actually add two years. Uh, Tertullian also notes that Jesus was born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra. So a lot of you probably know that name from history. In 30 BC, so born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra, she died in 30 BC. So that, again, is consistent with 2 BC. Augustus began his reign in the autumn of 43 BC. It's also consistent with a 2 BC birth year. Uh, Eusebius, he, he lived from 264 to 340 AD, so you know, roughly a couple hundred, 230 years after Jesus' death, and he's known as the father of church history. He wrote a lot of history about the early church, and he ascribes it, the birth of Jesus, to the 42nd year of the reign of Augustus and the 28th year from the subjection of Egypt after Mark, Anthony, and Cleopatra died. So so the only, the only date that's consistent with both would be a 2 BC kind of dating. The 42nd year of Augustus ran from the autumn of 2 BC to the autumn of 1 BC. Okay, so remember that that's the 42nd year. The subjection of Egypt into the Roman Empire occurred in the autumn of 30 BC. So 28 years after that would be around the autumn of 2 BC. And it's the only date or time frame or season that fits both constraints. That's the, that's the point of it. So from an historian standpoint of what Josephus and Eusebius and all these other uh, ancient men wrote about history and what was going on in Israel, the only date that fits what a lot of them wrote is around 2 BC. 
So the question is, well, can you confirm that in Scripture anywhere, right? We've got to search the Scriptures to see what's going on here. Look at Luke chapter 2, 1 through 5. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Okay, so God moves, this is amazing. God moves the Roman Empire that's ruling the world to institute a new tax that you had to travel to your own hometown to register for, all for the purpose of getting Mary and Joseph to leave and go to Joseph's hometown in Bethlehem. So he moves the entire Roman Empire to do this, to get people to go do that. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. That's the, that's the key. You had to travel to your own city to register for this new tax. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So notice both Joseph and Mary are from the tribe of Judah, and Joseph is specifically down through the lineage of David. And we've studied the genealogy some before, but if you've never looked into that, it's, it's a fascinating study. Okay, the Roman administrator would not have required registration in the winter because all of Israel's, for the most part, is impassable, especially back then before roads and cars and you know, four by four horses, I guess. But they, they couldn't go anywhere, which is why Jesus in Matthew 24 tells the Jews to pray that their flight be not in the winter during at the midpoint of the tribulation because they won't be able to travel by cars or trains. They'll be on foot mostly during that time and they can't pass over the mountains in the winter. And so that's why he says in Matthew 24, 20 to pray that their flight, but pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. See, so what Jesus is saying to the Jews, remember Matthew 24, that whole discourse is instructions on how to survive the tribulation for the Jewish people, not for us, not for the church, for the Jews. And what he's telling them is, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place, pray that that does not happen in the winter. Because at that point, you've got to flee Israel. You're going to be on foot. You may have babies with you, whatever the case is. You've got to flee Israel and also pray that it's on the Sabbath day because you can only then go a Sabbath day journey. That's why, it's, that's why you know it's specifically part of it to the Jews. He's, he doesn't want them to have to travel on the Sabbath because he knows they'll be trying to keep that still. But this, so the Roman administrator, there's no way he would have charged the entire nation of Israel to travel to their hometown in the winter. It just wouldn't have happened. Look at Luke 2, verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, their flocks were not in open field after October. It's too cold. So the Israelites and shepherds, they would keep the, the flocks more indoors or in stables or in a barn somewhere in the winter after October because it's just too cold over, in there, over there in the Middle East. They would not have stayed 
the night in the field with their flocks in the winter. So that's another hint from Luke chapter 2. Okay, Joseph and Mary are going to Bethlehem. Now, this is all to fulfill a prophecy out of Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now, remember, that's exactly what happens during the trials that Jesus is going through. Remember, one of the, one of the priests comes over and slaps Jesus. Okay, this is to fulfill Micah 5.1. Micah 5.2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, will he, be, will he give them up until the time that she which traveleth, that's Israel. Remember the end times, the Lord always speaks of her as a woman in labor pains, as traveling. Okay, have brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Okay, verse two is what we're gonna hone in here on Micah 5. Bethlehem Ephrathah. So God is being very specific because there's actually two different Bethlehems in Israel. There still are today, and biblically there are two different ones. Uh, Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah and Bethlehem of the tribe of Zebulun. So Mary never lived in Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's where Joseph was born. That's why they traveled there to be taxed. So how would Jesus be born in that location? Well, she lived a five to seven day journey roughly north. And again, but God moved Rome in such a way that they had to travel there. And what I love about the end of verse two is Jesus's goings forth have been from eternity. So yes, he arrived the first time in the flesh, but his goings forth have been from everlasting, from old to everlasting. You know, he's always been moving about. And actually that term in the Hebrew is a term of a general going out to war. And, you know, you think about Jesus came and he was so humble, this child, he never spoke back during the trials, but he came to declare war. Remember from Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You shall bruise his heel, he shall crush your head. And he started that when he showed up the first time, that he declared war on Satan by conquering the grave. Okay, the Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, it's first mentioned in scriptures as the place where Jacob, Israel's wife, Rachel died and was buried directly to the north of the city. That's all in Genesis 48, verse seven. It's the same place where Ruth and Naomi, if you remember from the book of Ruth, the valley to the east was the scene of the story of Ruth, the Moabitess. And in those fields, she gleaned with Naomi and returned on a path to the town that was that same Bethlehem. It's the birthplace of King David and where he was anointed king by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses four through 13. It's from a well in this Bethlehem that three of David's men, his mighty men, brought water for him at the risk of their lives when he was hiding out in the cave of Adullam. And that's all in 2 Samuel 23. And ultimately, it's the birthplace of Jesus. 
And the Bethlehem, this Bethlehem is distinguished above every other city as the birthplace of the one whose goings forth have been of old. And, and what I love about this is it is so tiny. This place is a, it's, you would blink and miss it if you're driving through. It's so small. But how God chooses the small things to confound the wise. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You know, the Israelites were looking for, they were so used to these Roman generals and kings on these big stallions with dressed uh, in fine linens and with these big crowns and walking around in the finest the world had to offer. And yet here is the Lord moving the world and through this little bitty town of a thousand people or less, he chooses it for the king to be born who spoke all of that into existence. You know, he came so humbly. And part of that is how it confused the Israelites. They, they missed it. And then the, you even see the Roman people confused by it. This is the king? He's born in this little town? And it's just amazing. He, does that, he uses that pattern all over time. And even today, he will use the small things of the world to, to confound the wise. And they're wise in their own eyes, Right? because they think that the cross is foolishness. And it's so, it's so simple and humble that, that the king presented himself in death on the cross and they can't even understand it. But it's those things that, that God works in such mysterious ways to confound the wise. So the second Bethlehem is the tribe of Zebulun. It's also known as Bethlehem of Zebulun, Bethlehem of Galilee, the Galilean Bethlehem, and Bethlehem Zoriah. Uh, this Bethlehem is mentioned in Joshua 19, verse 15, and was part of the inheritance of the tribe of Zebulun. The 10th ruler or judge of Israel named uh, Ibzan came from this Bethlehem and later died there with his family. The city became a, an early, early in the founding of the church, the city became a Christian community and much later became a a ruined village named Bet Laham, and it's located about six miles northwest of Nazareth. And now it's actually, today, it's a community for agriculture. Uh, very, very tiny. But so when you read about Bethlehem in the Bible, it's just interesting to make sure you've got the right one picked out. Okay, now, if you remember Elizabeth, John's mother, she was a cousin of Mary and was wife of a priest named Zacharias, who was of the course of Abijah, and that's all in Luke 1. Uh, there are the verse references, 5, 8 through 13, 23 through 24. If you remember from 1 Chronicles 24, the priesthood is divided into 24 courses, and each course officiated the temple for one week from Sabbath to Sabbath, and they would rotate. So you had a seven-day duty in the temple, and then you'd be off for basically 23 weeks and then go again. And the course of Abijah was the eighth course from 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10. Okay, we know the temple was destroyed in August 5th of 70 AD. So this is taking the word of God now and going from 70 AD and looking backwards, okay, to when Jesus showed up. The first course of priests had just taken office, according to the Talmud and Josephus, when the temple was destroyed. The first one had just taken office. 
So going backwards from that date, Zacharias would have ended his officiating term on July 13th of 3 BC. So if the birth of John took place 280 days later, it would have been April 19th, 20th of 2 BC during the week of Passover that year, which is amazing because John, John the Baptist is the one that introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so interesting that he was born on Passover week himself, just like Jesus died on Passover week. So if John was born April 19th, 20th of 2 BC, remember the Israel's calendar, the Jewish calendar, the next day starts at sundown. So that's why we're using that kind of spread there. 2 BC, his 30th birthday would have been April 19th and 20th of 29 AD in the 15th year of Tiberius. Again, remember, there's no year zero. The minimum age for the priesthood was 30 from Numbers chapter four, verse three. And John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, likely on his 30th birthday from Luke three, verse one. So remember that was when the priest was, or a, a priest was officiated to begin his ministry or service. And that's likely when John the Baptist took that up. So Augustus died on August 19th of 14 AD, which was the ascension year for Tiberius. And again, it all confirms a 2 BC dating. So really, you know, on our calendar, we really should be in the year like 2024 right now because BC to AD should have happened about two years before that. So since John was five months older, this also would confirm an autumn birth for King Jesus. So just think about that. That's amazing. You can go back from Elizabeth, Mary's sister, to when John started and find out roughly about when Jesus was born. Remember, Elizabeth hid herself for five months, and then Gabriel announced to Mary both Elizabeth's condition and that she would also bear a son named Jesus. And Mary went with haste to visit Elizabeth, who was then in the first week of her sixth month, or the fourth week of December in 3 BC. That's all in Luke 1, verse 36. So Jesus was born 20, 280 days later. It would place the date of his birth September 29th of 2 BC. And then that would also mean that the shepherds could have been in the field. All of that would then line up. And that date would fall, ironically, the date that year in 2 BC would fall on the Feast of Trumpets. Though it also explain why there was no room at the end in Luke chapter 2 verse 7 because that was one of the feasts where everyone was required to come to town. And so Judea would have been, had probably roughly a million or more people joining them for that feast during that time. And that's all the requirement for that's in Leviticus 23, Numbers 29, and the Jews refer to it as Rosh Hashanah. So look at Luke 1, uh, verses 26 through 33 here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb 
and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Remember, that's the ruling political throne on earth over Israel that Jesus has not sat on yet. That happens in the millennium. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end and he'll rule forever. Look at Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Remember, this is all after Israel has rebelled against the Lord. They keep going away from him. They keep going away from him. And he actually, the Lord is saying this because one of the kings refused to take a sign from him. And he says, fine, I'll give you a sign that I rule over Israel. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in the Hebrew, it's not just any virgin. It's actually a personally specific pronoun, the virgin. There's one in mind. Her name's Mary. She'll conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Isaiah 9 verse 6, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the child born is representative of his humanity. The son that's given is representative of his deity, his divinity, because Jesus is the I Am, and he's from everlasting so some Jewish people actually say that this pivotal event of all human history to which the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, points is also the return of Christ. So again, Acts 17.11 applies, but it's amazing. It's interesting to think about what if his descent into the air to gather his church is on the anniversary of his birth? That would be pretty cool. So you see this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds." to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. How comforting is it that you and I are not appointed to wrath, the wrath of God in the tribulation. It is so comforting. And it's amazing that that one promise alone, the promise of the rapture, that's the only promise we were hanging on after we were saved, should be enough to drive you and I to live for him every single day because at any second, he's going to call us home. And our time and opportunity to expand his kingdom on this world will just end instantaneously. Now, everything you did will forever last and ripple, right? You get to leave a, a testimony and a witness here on the earth for him. But it's at the voice of a trump. See, that's a Rosh Hashanah term, the voice of a trump. Okay, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 15 when we get our resurrected body. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
okay, this is when you and I at the rapture, we get our immortal resurrected body at the rapture, you and I. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's how long it takes for the speed of light when Abraham was alive to pass through your retina because the speed of light's been slowing down since then. So it's that, it's that fast. It's a little faster than today. And, and the dead at the last trump, so there's, the, there's that term again, Rosh Hashanah, the last trump, the feast of trumpets. Okay, remember they blew 50 trumpets and then at the, what the Lord is saying is at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, I'm not saying it's for sure the rapture is for sure going to happen on the anniversary of Jesus' birthday. I just think it's amazing to think about. You know, I would just encourage all of you to study it in the Bible and, and see if it fits. I don't know, but it's a very interesting concept to consider. So most would assume that there were also three magi, right? Because what do they bring Jesus when he's born? They give him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And because of the three gifts, a lot of times in Sunday school growing up and in churches growing up, we picture these three wise men on candles, um, uh, not candles, camels, excuse me, <laughs> on camels, yeah, they're writing candles, um, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the Bible doesn't number them. And we know that there had to be a gigantic army coming into Jerusalem when Jesus was born because all of Jerusalem feared in that moment. So these people, they're called the Magi. From the Latin form of the Greek word uh, magio, it's transliterated from the Persian for a select sect of priests. This is who Daniel was put in charge of all the way back in Daniel. So the ancient Magi were a hereditary priesthood of the Medes, the Persians. And they proved to be experts in the interpretation of dreams. Remember, Daniel was a dream interpreter. And thus Darius the Great, who was the king of Persia, established them over the state religion of Persia. And so the Magi became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire. And remember, the Persian Empire is the one that conquered Babylon. Okay, one of the titles given to Daniel was the chief of the Magi. So he became the prime administrator in two world empires, Babylon from Nebuchadnezzar, and then also Persia by Darius and whenever he took over. Darius appointed him a Jew over a priesthood that really you were only supposed to be able to get into by, by birth. It was a hereditary priesthood. It was one of the reasons why they all wanted to kill Daniel, and they came up with this scheme to put him in the lion's den. So Daniel apparently entrusted a messianic vision to be announced in due time by a star to a secret sect of the Magi for its eventual fulfillment. So Daniel, Daniel was an amazing prophet, but he got a prophecy of a star and it's actually out of Balaam from Numbers. Remember, Balaam has that prophecy. I didn't put the scripture references in your notes, but go back in Numbers and look at what Balaam has a vision of, of the star. Daniel picks that up and connects it to the arrival of the Messiah and entrusts it to a portion of these magi that are truly of God, that they are, they're, not trying, they're not trying to kill him. So, so both nations... Uh, during the days of Jesus, uh, 
were under Seleucid Greek domination in the wake of Alexander's uh, conquest, okay, before Jesus, I'm sorry, before Rome conquered uh, Greek, uh, the Grecians. Subsequently, both had regained their independence, and the Jews, under the Maccabean leadership, a lot of you probably heard of the Maccabean revolt, so they gained their independence then, and the Persians as the dominating ruling group within the Parthian Empire. So, Remember Pompey, if you remember that name from history, he was the first Roman conqueror of Jerusalem. And in 55 BC, uh, Carsus led Roman legions into taking out Jerusalem and in a subsequent attack, the Parthian Empire. So the Persians turned into the Parthian Empire to the east. If you're looking on a map, that would be like modern day Iran, kind of that area east of Israel, and Rome obviously to the west. Uh, where Italy is and all of that, the, the eastern leg of Europe. The Romans were defeated at this battle, and the Parthians counterattacked with an invasion of Syria and, and Israel, Armenia and Israel. And so nominal Roman rule was reestablished under Antipur, if you remember that name, the father of Herod. He's the father of Herod who's ruling when Jesus is around. And those are all around 40 B.C., and Mark Anthony reestablished Roman sovereignty in 37 BC, but also embarked on a, uh, this campaign to try to attack the Parthians. So he, he gets defeated. He has a retreat that was followed by another wave of invading Parthia, which swept out all of Roman opposition, including Herod himself, which had to flee back to Rome, basically during this time. So with Parthia cooperation, Jewish sovereignty was restored and Jerusalem was fortified with a Jewish garrison. So get the, understand that geographically, you have Rome in Eastern Europe, you have the Israeli region, and then to the east of that, you have the Parthian Empire who were kind of friends with Israel during that time. They were helping them out. And so they kept pushing back the Romans. Herod was then given the title King of the Jews from Augustus Caesar during that time. But it wasn't for three years, including a five-month siege by the Roman troops, that he was actually able to occupy Jerusalem. So there was war going on at this time, a lot of it. So Herod had thus gained the throne of this rebellious nation of Israel, which was situated between these two empires vying for the world's future, okay? They're stuck right in the middle of this when Jesus shows up. And at any time, Herod was so nervous. At any time, his own subjects might conspire in bringing the Parthians to their aid and just wiping him out. Okay, so he was nervous. Get that, I'm trying to give you a little bit of background so you can understand when these magi come into Jerusalem, you understand why he was freaking out a little bit because he thought they were coming in to take him out. So in Jerusalem, the sudden appearance of the Magi, it shocked the entire city. He wasn't expecting this. And the Magi, they traveled in a military caravan. They, they traveled with a lot of armed guards and troops. And so that all this tension between Rome and Parthia, it could, war could have broken out at any moment. And so here you have this giant military convoy entering the city not for war, but to find the king, to find Jesus, because they're all descendants of that priesthood that Daniel was over 
and entrusting them the time of the king's arrival. Okay, it certainly alarmed Herod, and look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, so it wasn't just, you know, three guys on camels riding in that troubled the city. There was this huge military convoy coming in, and they request going to Herod, and they stand in front of Herod, and they say this intentionally. They say, who has been born? We're looking to see the one who's been born king of the Jews, not the one who was appointed king of the Jews. It's a, it's a calculated put down of Herod because he's this illegitimate king over the Jews and they know he's nervous and he's, he's sweating it a little bit, right? With his hand, hand wringing. And they come in and, hey, we're looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. It's not you. And so consulting his scribes, Herod discovered from Micah 5.2 that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And we just, we covered that earlier, the difference between the two Bethlehems. So after finding Jesus and presenting their prophetic gifts, the Magi are then warned in a dream and not to go back to Herod. Remember Remember what he tells them? When you find the lad, come again, because I want to worship him too. Yeah, liar, total liar. He wants to kill Jesus. That's all he wants to do because he's afraid. And, they, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, warns them in a dream, do not go back and tell Herod where you found him. Leave, you leave town. So thus they depart to their own country, ignoring Herod's request. And the enemy always, there's a principle here though, the enemy always seeks to kill a move of God in its infancy. And it's typically within the first two years that that happens. And you see this a lot when, when young Christians get born again and it's they, if they're struggling still with something in their life that was, that was holding them captive, a lot of times the enemy draws them back out of faith and back into the world very quickly you know, early in their walk. And sometimes it happens much later, but he will try to attack in a big way early on. But it, there's a principle there. They always try to, he always tries to take out a move of God early. And they're looking, remember, he wants to kill all the babes two years and younger because, and I think I've got this maybe on the next slide, we'll see in a second, but the Magi traveled for about two years to find him. So they told him the date when they left. And that's why Herod's like, okay, it took them two years here. So when they finally come to Jesus, yes, like we read in those verses, the kids read in those verses, he was a babe in swaddling clothes in a manger, but he wasn't a newborn. He was about two years old, roughly. And it gives you a little bit of a different picture of this toddler, right, standing out there when the Magi show up and they all bow to him. This military convoy, of perhaps thousands of people bow before a two-year-old because they know who he is. And they brought what? Gold for his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh for his death. Because myrrh is something, if you remember from Revelation 2 and 3, myrrh is something that does not release its aroma until it is crushed. And it's, prof it's prophesying of his death. 
that by his death, he would be our king priest and we would forever be in his family. And in the millennium, when Jesus has brought gifts again, they only bring gold and frankincense because his death's behind him. They don't bring it again. You see this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse six. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dominaries of Midian and Ephah, and all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. That is, that's frankincense in the Greek. And they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So the second time when he comes to rule and reign, he's presented gifts. And it's only for his kingship and his priesthood, not his death. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And I just again, I imagine when they say that, Herod is taken back a lot. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Notice that it's his star. This is not some astrological shooting star or meteoroid through the atmosphere or something else. This is the Holy Spirit. We've seen his star. We've seen his brightness. We've seen the light of the world that indwells all of us in this room. We've seen the Holy Spirit hovering, the Shekinah glory. And it's interesting, we've seen it in the east and are come to worship him. They were coming to worship, not just coming to present gifts, but to worship. And it's interesting that Jesus rode into Jerusalem through the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives. Remember when he rides in on the donkey, he descends the Mount of Olives to the east. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, as you can imagine, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor. You know, we don't often think of that as associated with the title of Jesus, but the governor. That shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for this young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Again, total lie. <laughs> when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood out where the young child was. Okay, so this is the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit leading them. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it doesn't say how much they presented to him. That's interesting too. I've heard some people consider that they may have presented enough to him to fund the disciples' ministry the whole time they were on the earth. It could have been that much. It could have been a, a treasury 
of gold. Frankincense was worth a lot in that day. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So at this point, he was probably about two years old, because that's how long it took them to journey. And the star, think about the pillar of fire leading the children of Israel in the wilderness. It's that same fire, that star, that brightness leading them to the feet of Jesus, this babe. And they all fell down and worshiped him and presented their gifts to him. You know, so the question of this Christmas season for all of us is, do you know and worship Jesus? That's, that's the key. And last, last Christmas, we also ended the service with this poem that is from a doctor, Meshach Lockridge of San Diego, Calvary Baptist Church. Mason, just be aware, I've got a video to play in a second. Okay, just be aware. Okay, this uh, Meshach Lockridge of San Diego of Calvary Baptist Church, and he, he wrote it years ago, and it's kind of been supplemented since that time. But I want to close with reading this, and then I've got a short video, it's about three minutes long, I think, of what's going on in Israel today and how they're looking for the Messiah. And there's one on the scene that they think is him. They think it's him. It, they call him the Yakuna. And he's performing miracles, uh, signs, wonders over in Israel. And people are almost worshiping this guy, the Jewish rabbis. And it's, it's interesting, the timing of it with everything. And so what I want to show it at the end is just to give you a perspective of he's, he's already done this. He came and died for us. And we are looking for him to take us home in the air. We're not looking for him to come again. The Jews that are not Messianic believers are still looking for all of this to be fulfilled. They're looking for him to show up the first time. And you know from, from Matthew that when false Christ and false Messiah start to arise, get ready. Because especially when you get the Jews looking to him and they think he's here, there's a lot prophetically unfolding, which is exciting. Okay, my king. The title of this poem is My King. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel, but he's also the king of all ages. King of heaven, king of glory, king of kings, and lord of lords. He's a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a counselor above Solomon, Beloved, rejected, and exalted like Joseph, and yet far more. The heavens declare his glory, and the firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be. The first and the last, he is the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tau, the A to the Z. He is the Ego I am, the I am that I am, the I am that I am, the voice of the burning bush, the captain of the Lord's host, the conqueror of Jericho, he's our kinsman redeemer. He is our avenger of blood, and he is our city of refuge. He was crucified on a cross of wood, and yet he made the very hill on which it stood. By him were all things made that were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him are all things held together. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily the very God of very God, 
He became the first fruits of them that slept. He is our performing high priest, our personal prophet, our reigning king. He is enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast. He is imperially powerful, immortally graceful, and impartially merciful. He stands alone in himself. He's unique, preeminent, supreme, and unparalleled. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of all theology. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the son of God. There is no means of measuring his limitless love. It was written in blood on that wooden cross erected in Judea 2,000 years ago. And my question for all of us, especially this time of year, is do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you really worship him? He was born of a woman so that we could be born of God. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made joint heirs with Christ. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He's available to the tempted and the tried, blesses the young, cleanses the lepers, defends the feeble, delivers the captives, discharges the debtors, forgives the sinners, franchises the meek, guards the besieged, heals the sick, provides strength to the weak, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, serves the unfortunate, sympathizes, and he saves. His offices are many, his reign is righteous, his promises are certain, his goodness is limitless, his light is matchless, his love never changes, his grace is sufficient, his mercy is everlasting, his word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. He's invincible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but soon learned they couldn't stop him. They railroaded him through six illegal trials, and yet the witnesses couldn't agree against him and the personal representative of the ruler of the world could not find any fault with him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave could not hold him. He always has been and always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. You can't impeach him, and he isn't going to resign. His name is above every name that at the name of Yeshua... Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Hallelujah and amen. So as we go into this this Christmas season, I just want to encourage all of you to make sure that he is preeminent in your life. You know, make sure that in your homes this time of year, he has taken the rightful throne. And don't miss the opportunity when you're with family this next weekend, friends, loved ones, to share about him. 
to share about what Jesus has done in your life because he alone is able and he's alone, he alone is able to do in their lives also. So before I close this in prayer, I wanna play this video to give you all an idea of what's going on in Israel because if you're not aware, this is incredible. And they are looking, these are not Messianic Jews. Again, do not donate to the Temple Institute. <laughs> do not send money to them, these rabbis. They, they are looking for who we know to be the Antichrist, the false Messiah, okay? And there's, there's one over there making a lot of waves right now that is performing miracles and signs and what, what the Bible would call perhaps lying wonders because not that a miracle or a sign is lying in its nature, but the question is, who gets the glory for it? And if it's not Jesus, then it's a lying sign and wonder. That's how you differentiate, okay? It's who's getting the glory. And when you watch this video, it's short, it's only about three minutes, uh, then we'll close in prayer. So they are, 
if you notice in that whole video, the name of Jesus was not one time used by these people that are experiencing signs and miracles and wonders through the, uh, I, I, think how you, I think I'm saying the, the word right, but the uh, yanakuna, I think is how you say it in, in Hebrew, but they are looking for the Messiah that you and I right now are celebrating right now. And they, are, they think that he needs to show up still and perform all of these miracles. And when you see them doing this kind of thing, when the Jews are getting excited about someone that they think potentially could be the Messiah, you and I need to, to be like eyes wide open looking at them. Because when, they, when this all starts to take place, we know it takes place in the end times, especially during the tribulation. Jesus said, you know, I come in my Father's name and you, you've rejected me. He's basically, I'm paraphrasing, but another will come in my name and him you shall receive. And they are, they are on the verge basically of worshiping this guy over there, this new rabbi that's come out of nowhere. And I just think it's fascinating. I'm not saying he's the Antichrist or anything like that. Please do not misunderstand I'm just, I'm just saying it's, it's fascinating to look at what's being set up over there. They are ripe and ready to, to receive the false Messiah that you and I worship today as dead, risen, and living in heaven, that we're going to be with him. So keep your eye on the Jewish news, the Israeli Times, Jerusalem Post, things like that. It's, it's fascinating what's going on over there. So I'm trying to bring to light some of this at the end of every message for all of us to be watchful of what's happening in our world around us because things are being put in place that have never been for thousands of years. So with that, we hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. We will not have service next weekend as much as I'm sure all of you would love to to come and open your gifts here on the floor with your kids. Uh, We won't be here next weekend. So enjoy your, your time with your family, your friends. Enjoy Christmas. Go and celebrate our King. That's what it's all about. And I hope you enjoyed the study. I'll close us in prayer here. Lord, we thank you again for this time together. We pray that, God, you would give us a blessed week ahead. Lord, as we, if we're traveling, if we have friends and family traveling in or wherever we are going in this Christmas season, God, we pray that, Lord, you would bless our time together, that it would be glorifying to you, and that, God, we would keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, the one whose goings forth are from everlasting. We are looking for you to take us home, and until then, Lord, we will occupy until you come, and we will go out and go forth and make disciples. That's what we're called to do, Lord, and we are going to do that until our time ends. And Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the study in your word. Be with us all as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.